Welcome to episode 73, Transgender Clients with Eating Disorders, Clinical Considerations and Approaches, featuring Allison Burnett, licensed and independent clinical social worker by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, we're joined by Allison Burnett. Uh, She is a licensed independent clinical social worker in the state of Alabama, and she is both a certified LGBT affirmative psychotherapy provider and a certified transgender care therapist. She also has a specialization in working with eating disorders. And today, she's here to talk with us about clinical interventions for transgender clients that also have eating disorders. I want to take a moment also to note for our listeners that the terminology to describe transgender people is continually evolving alongside a deeper understanding of the categories of biological sex, gender identity, and gender expression. Use of various lexicon is specific to each individual and his, her, or their self-identification. And in this episode, we use various terms and just want to keep in mind that the terminology is really specific to each individual. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Allison. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So before we launch into this topic, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background and how you came to do this work? Sure. Um, yeah, so I'm currently in Birmingham, Alabama, and I have worked in the eating disorder field for almost 10 years. I started in 2010, um, and I've always worked in higher levels of care, residential, PHP, IOP. And the longer I worked there in the eating disorder field, the more and more LGBTQ clients we, we saw in our, our community, in our milieu. And, and I work for a, a treatment program called Alsana and we treat all genders. And so we kept seeing more and more transgender clients. So the clinical team and I were wondering if what we were doing was the best treatment for our LGBTQ clients and especially our transgender clients. And does that change? Does it look the same? Does it need to be different? And so um, I was encouraged and was lucky to be certified in various areas uh, to help with our clients. And and that's my job now. I'm the National Director of Alumni and Advocacy. So the alumni, obviously, I work with our clients once they leave. And the advocacy piece is for our LGBTQ clients. And so um, I just try to make sure that our program is uh, the best it can be for our uh, LGBTQ clients. Thank you for sharing how you came to have this specialization. Before we move into the nitty gritty of our topic, why don't you start by sharing some of your recommendations for clinicians as they begin their work with transgender individuals in general, and then we'll transition to the differences uh, in working with eating disordered behaviors in transgender individuals. Sure. What I always begin with is working with our staff and I educate people um, around the country on exploring their own gender identity and their own um, uh, sexual orientation. If we want to go the LGBTQ route and the umbrella of transgender, Um, but the clinicians. So if you're a cisgender clinician and you are working with a transgender client, we have to understand that our gender identity affects our relationship with our client and not at a conscious level, but mainly through our um, privileges or our um, cisgenderism, if you will. And how does that affect and what is their experience like and what is our trans clients experience like? Because we will never be able to know that for sure. And for the record, I'm cisgender. Um, I'm a cis female. And so I always want to explore with staff and with clinicians, dietitians, medical providers, have you ever explored your gender identity? Do you do you see it as a constant factor? Do you see it um, uh, fluid? Do you see your gender expression as fluid or as a constant factor? What was your first um, acknowledgement or what was your first awareness of people who identified as transgender? Um, I think mine actually uh, was... Years ago, um, maybe Chaz Bono on the news. I feel like that might have, I'm from a rural town in Alabama. And so I didn't have a lot of experience interacting with transgender individuals or, or people who had um, non-binary uh, gender identities. And so I think my first experience was probably through the media um, or TV shows or anything like that. So, and then what was your first reaction about that? Do you remember processing it? Did you, do you remember your family saying anything about um, the Chaz Bono uh, or any um, transgender individuals you may come across? Did you have any family members who identified as trans? And 
and how did you make sense of that? Um, what was your gut reaction? And I also want to understand the clinician's perspective of what would happen if your kid came out as trans, right? Or your spouse or your partner or your sister or your parent. And what would your um, first reaction be? And all of this comes from um, a, an adapted model, actually, of uh, ha- heterosexism and the heterosexual therapist. And so I just sort of adapted that from McGeorge, McGeorge and Carlson in 2011 for gender, because I really like the questions that they asked to explore how the clinician's sexual orientation affects the relationship with someone with their client who doesn't have the same sexual orientation. So I just switched it around for gender because there's not a whole bunch of stuff going on in gender in the research world. Um, but there's all these questions that you can ask and you can use it with your trainees and your interns about does this, does society norms affect the way you express your gender? Does society norms affect the way you express uh, your gender identity? And so we have to look at ourselves first before we start working with a transgender client. Does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense. And I think it brings up the importance of what I call kind of checkity checking our bias at the door and being aware of it, that even within the awareness of the differences that we have with our clients, we're still going to struggle to understand their worldview. It's just inevitable. But I I like where you're using that as kind of the starting point to have clinicians working in this space, reflecting on how that's coming into the work clinically. Right. And there are things that as cisgender, we, I never have to think about, I never have to worry about. And, and I need to have some sort of awareness um, uh, when I work with transgender clients. And I think that's the difference between, yes, I treat all genders and well done. I welcome all clinicians to, to be affirming uh, and work with all genders and trans individuals and gender nonconforming. And there has to be a little bit more than that. Um, so how, how does my view of, um, someone who identifies as transgender affect, do I think being cisgender is the norm and the ideal? And do I think transgender is a struggle and, and it's um, pathology and uh, it's in the DSM as gender dysphoria? And how does that affect my relationship with my clients? Um, similar, the questions related to that with the original uh, heterosexism, heterosexism is, do I believe that being straight is the ideal norm and being in a same sex relationship would be the ideal norm and that everyone who is gay would want to be straight, similar, but different. Do I believe everyone who's transgender would want to be cisgender? Right. And so, and if that's my take on that, that's definitely going to affect my relationship, right. With my um, transgender client. So I'm all about starting within and exploring our privilege and our, our biases. And some of them, and some clinicians have the best intentions ever, right? And I know as a cisgender individual, I have privilege and biases just based on that. And so I have to always, like you said, check, check, check my biases. Um, and, and I'm also a white cisgender female. So if I work with people who ha- are different skin colors than me, then I have to check my white privilege as well. As you talk about this, the other piece that I'm thinking too is not only the experience of a clinician being different from a client necessarily in their gender expression, but also the difference with a clinician and client in their experience or lack of experience of eating disorders. And so you have these two um, two different kind of ways of being coming into the room that's that's fundamentally impacting a clinician's ability to understand and appreciate the worldview of that other person. Gosh, yes. And eating disorders take away gender. Eating disorders, I feel like in my experience, is a very specific specialization, if you will. Um, there's not a whole lot of uh, specialists out there who my main thing is eating disorders and this is what I treat. So the knowledge of eating disorders is not well um, spread out. And then if you combine that with another population that's very specific, transgender population, the amount of specialists are not, are very, very few and far between. Um, and how does the gender identity, uh, or gender dysphoria, gender identity affect the eating disorder and how does the eating disorder affect gender identity or does it at all? And so I think sometimes we might look at someone who identifies as trans, um, or someone who's experiencing gender confusion even, and they have depression, anxiety, eating disorder, you know, these things. And they're like, oh, well, clearly it's because of gender dysphoria. It's because of identifying as transgender. When really it might not be related at all. Um, it could be related to um, attachment or OCD or 
trauma or family. Um, and so I think we always have to tease it out of how, how do we work with this diagnosis of an eating disorder and this client is transgender? Are they related? Are they not? Is it correlated? We have to start at the basics and not even assume that they're related. In your experience, do eating disorder symptoms look different with a transgender client than they do with a cisgender client? Oh, good question. So, mm, yes and no. Here's why. Um, so if we think about the eating disorders as anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating, the main three, and there's um, ARFID, restrictive, uh, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, and PICA, and not all of these things. And there's also subtypes with anorexia. The behaviors in terms of restriction and purging or binging will look the same, but the intent might be different. So if I am um, born sex assigned at birth female, and I identify as a man, but I get my period once a month, my menstrual cycle comes once a month, and that reminds me of the fact that my body is a female and my um, uh, and, I, and I was born with the body that I don't identify as. So I might restrict enough to lose enough weight where I can lose my period um, of, as a trans client. Whereas a cisgender client, the losing their period may or may not be a factor in that. Um, some individuals might, some not. And all transgender clients might not want to lose their period. I'm just saying um, in general. Or... If I am, again, a sex assigned at birth male, identify as female, then the idealized version of a female body in my mind might be very thin, um, might be or, or have the perfect curves or the perfect measurements or what have you. So I might need to lose weight because men and women bodies are just built differently, structurally, bones, skeletons, uh, they're just built differently. So I might want to restrict to... Um, create that idealized, thin, feminine figure. On the opposite side, if I sex assigned at birth female and I identify as a man, I biologically will have hips and thighs of a female that men typically don't have. And so I might want to restrict food intake or purge my food to lose weight, to lose the feminine identifying body components um, to, to be able to pass as a man. And this is maybe those clients who uh, are unable or haven't or don't want to um, use hormone replacement therapy because HRT, of course, will help with the redistribution of fat and muscle tone. Um, or these clients may be young. They might be 18, 17, 13, and their parents might not let them use uh, do HRT. And so um, what are ways that they can control it themselves in, in an unhealthy way is the, use the eating disorder. And, and not everyone who tries to lose weight will develop an eating disorder, of course. Um, but, or and, the majority of eating disorders come from dieting. And so if we have a transgender client goes on a diet, you know, that might be um, the trigger that starts the eating disorder. So what you're saying is that the symptom itself may be similar, but the etiology is different. The root of it and where it's coming from may be driven differently for individuals who are trans. Yeah. And if we take away um, body image completely and gender identity completely, a, a client who identifies as trans could also develop an eating disorder for a variety of reasons that I talked about earlier, as well as cisgender clients. It's not all about body image. It's not all about losing weight. Um, I think the People not in the field might think, oh, it's losing weight, body image, all that. It's about a variety of things, um, a list of a million possibilities what fuels the eating disorder. And so, but if we look at something that may be um, in common, uh, it could be the body image. Um, but again, it could be from trauma, bullying in sixth grade, uh, trauma in high school kind of thing. When we look at the prevalence of eating disorders in the transgender community, um, what's the difference between the transgender community compared with a cisgender community and the prevalence of eating disorders? So it's interesting. And if I'm going to expand it to the LGBTQ, eating disorders are more prevalent percentage-wise in LGBTQ than non-LGBTQ. In gay men, disproportionately higher. In trans individuals, disproportionately higher compared to cisgender individuals. There was a study recently with the NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association, uh, Trevor Project and Reasons in 2018 that looked at, now they only sampled 13 to 24 year olds um, who identified as LGBTQ. So of those individuals, 54%, so 
over half had been diagnosed with an eating disorder. And then the rest of the group, 21% were suspected to have an eating disorder. The startling statistic is the transgender respondents. Now, there it wasn't a large group sampling of transgender respondents, but of the trans respondents, 13 to 24, 71% were diagnosed with an eating disorder, which is huge, right? If you think about if cisgender community had 71% of the cisgender world diagnosed with an eating disorder, it would be an epidemic. It would be on every news story ever. And that's not the case, right? So what, why is that? Again, I think, um, Maybe to they're using eating disorder behaviors or or dieting has it actually led to an eating disorder to suppress or accentuate particular gendered features. Um, also, let's just think of minority stress. Um, the stress of being trans in a cisgender world could lead to unhealthy coping skills, addiction, um, or substance use and abuse, and an eating disorder, maybe self harm. So, if we look at if we hold both of those, right, the body. So I'm going to maybe diet to lose weight to get the body that I identify as and the stress that just become just comes with being a minority living in a cisgender world. Um, it makes sense to me. Unfortunately, it makes sense why eating disorders and mental health issues and substance use are so high in the LGBTQ community, especially in the trans community. Um, so it sounds like really when we're looking at the prevalence of eating disorders within the LGBTQ community, it's significantly higher than it would be for the cisgender straight uh, cisgender straight uh, community. Yeah, yes, proportionately. Now, the most, I guess, well-known or publicized and most common would be a white cisgender female. But if we look at it proportionately, Gay men, disproportionately high. Transgender, disproportionately high. Um, lesbian women actually kind of go back and forth. Some studies say it's the same. Some say it's less. Some say it's more. But just in terms of proportionately, um, yeah, disproportionately with the transgender community for sure. And when you see that as a clinician, how are you keeping that in mind? I mean, for you, when you have someone come in and they are questioning their gender or they they are trans, are you then doing an additional screening for eating disordered behaviors simply because of that, knowing that there's that comorbidity? Yeah. Um, I always try to tell people, clinicians, if you're working with a trans client, always assess for suicidality, number one, because we know higher rates of suicidality as well, not to go off on another topic. And I always screen for an eating disorder. And that could be because disproportionately, there will be higher rates in the trans community. And I've just worked in eating disorders for so long. Um I know what to look for. And, and most people I find who have an eating disorder come into therapy for depression or anxiety and sort of hold the eating disorder back. Um, and then it will come out later. So I always try to assess. And really, the easiest way to assess for an eating disorder, how's your eating? How's your appetite? How's your, uh, do, you, do you fixate on weight? Do you fixate on food? Um, and that could be your first opening question if you're assessing for an eating disorder right then. Um, and, and then, you know, you could also just go with depression. Depression could be uh, loss of appetite, increase of appetite, overeat, undereat, or they might have an eating disorder. But most people, I feel like cisgender, transgender come in for a different reason. And then the eating disorder will come out later in, in sessions. And when looking at clients who are new to HRT, how does that come into play with things like appetite? Um, you mentioned weight distribution. What should we know as clinicians who are treating trans individuals? Um, what should we keep in mind with that, the uh, addition of hormone replacement therapy and how that impacts things like appetite and could come into play with an eating disorder? Gosh, so I think and I'm, I'm a therapist. I'm a social worker, so I'm not a dietitian, but I work closely with dietitians all the time. And I firmly recommend that individuals who are, are going through HRT, starting it out, they've been on it for years, what have you, see a dietitian with or without an eating disorder, especially with an eating disorder, because in our dietitians talk with all of our clients about, okay, so this is what your body's going to do. They want to take away that surprise factor. So if you start uh, hormone therapy, um, your body is going to shift this way. Also, what if they're refeeding? What if they, um, their body is in a lower 
uh, lower weight and they need to gain weight perhaps to have their body functioning at the best way. And so the dietitians are really good at talking about this is going to affect your metabolism, uh, your fat distribution, your muscle. Um, labs need to be drawn all the time. So the medical staff need to be involved and talk to the endocrinologist who's special, who's working with a trans client with the hormone therapy. Um, and like, so we had a client who sex assigned at birth female identifies as male had an eating disorder, residential level of care. And so needed to, it was about 70% of the ideal body weight, right? And so the body is not functioning at 70%. Um, so client needed to gain weight. And as client gained weight, client's menstrual cycle came back. So we need to go ahead and remove that surprise factor. Client's breast grew. We need to go ahead and remove that surprise factor. The client had to buy different size binders um, as they were in treatment with us for several months because of weight gain. This client was... Um, a teenager, uh, older teen, but still financially dependent on parents and parents would not let HRT happen kind of thing. And so we just, we had to say, this is what your body needs to kind of get in this weight range. Also think about this with dietitians and medical staff. Do you use a weight range for a female? Do you use a weight range for a male with your clients transitioning? Or do you stay with same sex assigned at birth or do you move to the weight range for gender identity? So what our dietitians have sort of created, and, and I work with the dietitians who do this all the time, is they basically determine how long you've been on um, hormone therapy, and that'll affect the weight range that your body needs to get in. Um, and it's not an exact science, and your body could land higher or lower or in that range, um, depending on you know behavior, if it behaviors have stopped and where your body just sort of lands naturally. And then it might change the longer you go on hormone therapy. And as a therapist, I need to know all these things too. I need to be able to process with my client. This is what your body's going to do uh, as you're in treatment for an eating disorder. This is what your body's going to do with hormone therapy. I don't need to know the science behind it, but I need to know the, um, the general working knowledge so that I'll be able to process with my client who's gaining weight and now has gained hips and thighs back and identifies as a man. And what does that mean for them? And how are we going to work on that? And can they stay in recovery from their eating disorder? Does that make sense? It does make sense. I think that's a really good point about which uh, which reference populations does a nutritionist or a doctor use. And I assume you're then bringing that into the room and having that conversation with the client about this, you know, this, this is kind of what's ahead of you now that you started HRT and these are the things that we need to keep an eye out for together. So just put all the cards out there. Uh, your weight range, um, as a female body typically would be this. And again, I'm not a dietitian. Um, and then you're transitioning to a man. So we want to respect that, right? And we want to respect what the body needs to do to function. And we want to respect what you're comfortable with and what HRT will do. And so I'm all about, let's just go ahead and say, this is what we're doing. And there's not an exact application. There's not a standard for dietitians out there about what weight range to use um, or BMI. And BMI is a whole other issue and it's a terrible thing, but insurance companies love to look at BMIs. And so we have to think about BMIs as well for male body and female bodies. When you're looking in the higher levels of care, knowing that that's one of your specialization, how do you handle the community's treatment of the trans client in like a residential level of care? And how is that different from an outpatient level of care when you're working within the space of um, the, the uh, co-presentation of a trans individual with eating disorder behaviors? Some of the questions I always, or one question I always get is, how do you handle rooming and roommates of um, all gender treatment center? And, and we've always treated, uh, men, women, and transgender individuals. And we try to, uh, I think we've done it. We establish a culture of, um, acceptance and affirming within our community. So let's say, uh, our program has all cisgender clients at one time. And then, uh, we'll, we'll just stop there. And so within that community, we, the staff wears pronoun buttons. So we automatically want to, put out there, we respect your pronouns. Um, they come in knowing that we treat all genders and that we assign rooming roommates based on gender identity. Now, with that, I'm not going to put a trans client with someone who is transphobic. 
because I want everyone to be comfortable. Um, for the most part, this hasn't been an issue. Uh, so if you come in and you, you haven't transitioned medically, which some people might not want to, some people will, some people can't, um, and you identify as a woman, you're going to live in the female rooms, right? And if you have, if we have a cisgender man and then a trans man, then they might room together. Um, so it really, and again, I want everyone to be comfortable. So if a transgender individual says, can I have a private room? I'm going to try to make that happen. Um, or if, if a trans man hasn't, um, uh, transitioned at all and they don't feel comfortable rooming with males, then that's, we will, we will work with everyone. So I think establishing the culture because you have to think about the other clients and we have programs in California, Missouri and Alabama. And obviously Alabama is going to look a lot different. Um, so establishing the culture of affirming and acceptance of all genders is key. Um, when you get clients from all around the country and we don't know, you know, how they feel about transgender individuals or gay individuals, if we want to open it up a little bit larger, um, just establishing that we don't accept, uh, hate or intolerance and that we accept and affirm everybody's gender. That's with residential and all groups are, um, and there's not a transgender track. There's not an LGBTQ track. Um, similar to if you were to have an eating disorder treatment center, they might have a substance use track. I think that's pathologizing gender and, and people who identify as transgender and it pathologizes sexuality. And so I don't believe in tracks for um, treatment programs. I believe in inclusive programming. And so all clients go to the same groups. Um, they live in the same area, the same house they have the same programming with different tweaks. Um, so something that I think is important is to have a group based on uh, gender, sexuality, identity group. How does that affect eating disorder? Eating disorder, how does that affect um, uh, the gender? And But not have it where only transgender clients go to that group. It should be for everyone. Because if you're a cisgender client, uh, your eating disorder can impact your gender expression. It can impact your gender roles, your gender norms, um, sexuality, if we want to make it a bigger scope. And so every client ha needs to explore these uh, these areas in their life and not just our trans clients. Out of curiosity, when you have a client who is transphobic, how do you handle that when you have an LGBTQ-friendly treatment program and an individual that doesn't fit into that because of whatever's coming up for them. Yeah. So uh, and for whatever reason, transphobic, maybe they use religion as an excuse or um, to me, I feel like it's, they fear what they don't know and what they don't understand. And so for some people who come into treatment program, this might be the first trans person they've ever met in their entire life. And I have compassion for that. And I want everyone's experience to be, um, healthy and, and recovery focused and, uh, as, as positive as it can be in a treatment program. So what usually happens is that person will not room with, um, uh, the cisgender who's transphobic will not room with our transgender client, um, because we want everyone to be comfortable. And it's normally a minor, it's normally like one person in a, a group of 12 or a group of, you know, 10 clients. And so sometimes it comes out in group dynamics, whereas we can bring it to the group or the community might bring it up and um, talk about how it's affecting their, their treatment and how just because you don't understand something or maybe I'm using quotations, you don't believe in it. I, there are quotations around that, then, but you have to be respectful and um, create a positive environment. And so, I feel like when they start getting to know the client and they stop seeing the trans client as, oh, that's the trans client. And they see the trans client as a person, as a human, as someone who has an eating disorder and who can relate to them on all the different levels of um, family and depression and uh, trauma. And they might not can relate on gender, but they can relate on other things. I feel like that's when both of them can have compassion for each other. Um if we want to expand that, we can expand it with gay clients and straight clients and, oh, that's the gay client and I'm homophobic. Okay. So let's get to know each other aside from sexuality, aside from gender, and just get to know each other on a human level um, and see if we can work things through. It might require, I mean, if you know things escalate, which this is rare, uh, it might require individual sessions with the transphobic client their therapist, the transgender client and their therapist, where we can work on it. How can we create a cohesive unit? Because we're here to help everyone. 
Um, so most of the time the group handles it and their peers can, can talk, talk through it. And then we can always step in to do some individual sessions around it. Um, to just make sure it's everyone's okay with everyone. Got it. Um, I know you and I could probably spend a lot of time talking simply on, on the topic of transgender programming to bring it back into the eating disorder piece as well. When it comes to interventions that clinicians can use with um, individuals that are trans and then also have um, eating disordered behaviors beyond the initial assessment, making sure that we're appropriately assessing and screening for eating disorders. What else do you recommend um, that can be really helpful? What, what kind of assignments or interventions? So, yeah, um, there's a couple of assignments that I've just tweaked for uh, our transgender clients. And one is called a body story and it can be either used as an art project or you can write it out. And so this assignment is basically to tease out, not tease out, but sort of figure out where the line is with eating disorder and um, gender dysphoria. And so, and it can help clinicians and the client understand their relationship with their body more and where they want their relationship to go. And so if you picture a, most people do this sort of in an artsy way. If you picture a tree, um, you have the roots, the trunk, and then the branches and leaves. And so the roots would be, okay, what's that client's experience uh, growing up with their, the messages that they received about their body, um, the messages that they, or, and how they felt about their body. So that would be growing up in childhood and adolescence, maybe depending on the age of the client. And if we tweak it for our transgender clients, what were their messages that they received about their sex assigned at birth body and the gender identity body. So if I sex assigned at birth male, I'm receiving messages about what the male body should look like. I'm receiving messages about how a male should act. If we want to take it larger than that, I'm receiving messages about all these masculine things. And I know I am a woman. What are my, what do I hear people, media, family, friends say about female bodies, um, uh, female roles, female norms. And so, and how is that impacting me? So that would be the roots um, of, you know, maybe I've come up with this idealized masculine. I need to be very muscular and very masculine and very uh, beefy, if you will, um, to be a man. And if I'm a woman, then I need to be uh, very thin and very feminine and very um, ladylike. So these, these are just examples. Not everyone hears these messages, but those would be your roots. So then the trunk, the middle, what's your current relationship with your body? Uh, what are the current messages you receive about your body and what your body should or should not look like. And then if we tweak that, depending on where they are in transition, if they want to transition, have they started, where are they? What's your relationship you're in your current transition state, as well as um, maybe you haven't started transitioning. So what's your relationship and your messages again with your gender identity and your sex assigned at birth, your current um, how do you feel when you walk outside your house as the gender identity that you, the gender that you identify as? And then how do you feel, um, if you can't, for whatever reason, your safety, you know, physical violence, you might be threatened if you walk out, um, of your house as your gender identity. How do you feel about your body then? And that, so that would be all your current relationships, um, uh, your current relationship. And then the branches or the leaves would be, what do you want your relationship to look like? What do you want your relationship with your body to look like? Um, what do you want transition to look like? If you want to transition, what do you want your goals and your hopes for um, maybe hormone therapy, maybe surgery, maybe other medical interventions? Um, maybe, maybe you're, depending on where you are, you know, age-wise or transition-wise, maybe the future might just be um, wearing a dress outside. Um, and that might be as far as we can go, or maybe it can be, I want to have surgery and I, um, I want to have facial feminization surgery, you know, the possibilities are endless. So, and that just be where you want, um, your relationship to look like. And that I think can help look at body image regardless of gender. And then it can also look at, um, where do we get our, our view of the feminine body or the masculine body? Uh, where did that view come from? 
And, but is it aligned with actually where I want to be or is that where society tells me I should be? Um, and, ha- and how can we navigate that and where can we go with, though, this is the body I want and this is the body I identify as and this is the body I am. Um, or is this the body that society tells me I have to have because I'm a woman and this is what a woman looks like. So that's one way to do it. Uh, you can write it out or you can do it in art. And then another one is a timeline. And I feel like clinicians use timelines all the time just to see, you know, birth to present day. What does the life look like? And so what I like to do is uh, birth to present day, um, to timeline out, write it out. You can just use a piece of paper or you can use like a long, long butcher paper poster. Um, and when were you, did you first start having uh, gender dysphoria? When did you first start having, oh, I'm, I'm a boy. I'm, this is uh, sex assigned at birth female, but I'm a boy. I know deep down I'm a boy. Um, when did you first start having those thoughts? When did you first start noticing uh, these gender marker events? So um, I've heard a lot of uh, trans women talk about how they might use a blanket with the fringe around the blanket's edge as bangs and the blanket would be their hair. When did you first start using that? When did you first start dressing in your mom's clothes or your dad's clothes? Or um, when did you first uh, start packing your underwear or tucking your penis in your underwear, right? So timeline that out um, to present day. Um, and then I would time out, timeline out when were your first eating disorder thoughts? When was your first eating disorder behavior? When did you first purge? When did you first do that? Is there any correlation with gender? You could also do that with uh, self-harm or substance use or depression, you know, all these things. And are they correlated? Um, and throw in, of course, in the timeline, we want to know about transitions and traumas. And um, my parents got divorced at 15, you know, eating disorder skyrocket or when I came out as transgender to my parents, you sort of skyrocketed. And so let's just look at all of that and see if there's any relation um, with with behaviors as in gender dysphoria or not related at all. The last one I like to use. Um, so in the eating disorder world, we do, well, everyone does like journal letters, just letters that you write that you're not going to send, right? And so one that we do with our cisgender clients is, okay, write a letter to your body. Have your body write a letter to you. So with our transgender clients, what can we do differently with that? Same, have your body write a letter to you, you write a letter to your body, and then have you write your letter to what you want your body to be, what your gender identified body is, and then go back, have your gender identity body write a letter to you. And I think that's just helpful to even find compassion for themselves and some grace And so maybe they're in a place where they're unable to transition or um, they're young and they don't have their parents' approval or they can't afford it and their insurance doesn't cover it, whatever. So let's figure out how we can create compassion for our body um, so we don't have to use our eating disorder behavior. We don't have to use maybe self-harm. We don't have to use substance use so we can tolerate our body at least until we can get to a point where we can transition. Um, And then we can also, it, it just explores body image and gender. So those are like therapeutic, I guess, uh, assignments. And then if you're in a higher level of care, you might be medically compromised. So you can't necessarily start HRT. So what can you do to um, express your gender that doesn't require medical interventions? So like I was mentioning with that client earlier, wearing binders to suppress your um, chest, uh, wearing um, uh, tucking underwear to suppress your penis, asking the staff or not asking, telling the staff, Hey, this is my name now. Uh, this is, these are my pronouns and having the community and the staff respect that and use that. And that can be very helpful just, and and it sounds basic, but it's not, it's can be huge just to have the pronouns and name recognized. Um, and using, uh, so if I born female, I identify as a man, um, buying stand to pee devices. And that's what you can Google when you uh, need to show your client, hey, this can be helpful. And that way you can use the restroom as a man and you can use a urinal um, and that can help you as well. And so there's a lot of things that clients can do um, to help. I'm not saying it's going to cure everything and they're, oh, they're going to feel so much better. But if they can express their gender and they can change um, these different ways, it can help with their depression or anxiety or dysphoria um, and eating disorder. Uh, there's um, apps that use or different techniques. You can change your voice to speak higher or lower. And so e- any 
I say little, I don't think it's little, but anything compared to medical interventions that a client can do, we want to encourage that in uh, residential level care or higher levels of care. We want to embrace it and encourage it. Maybe they want to wear uh, gender their gender identity clothes for the first time in session go for it right uh, maybe they want maybe they're questioning and they just want to explore brilliant change your clothes cut your hair do anything you need get accessories paint your nails don't paint your nails let's just play with it express it and see what feels good to us um, so that's what we encourage in in higher levels of care and if you're an outpatient and you have someone questioning their gender or struggling with gender dysphoria or they are transgender but Maybe they can't, maybe they're married or they have kids and they, they're not ready to come out. How they can use your session as a place where they can feel safe and they can dress how they want and identify as they want. And you might be the first person they come out to. So um, I always try to just create the most in outpatient or higher levels of care, the most accepting, affirming environment where you can be whoever you want to be. And we're not going to pathologize it. We're going to embrace it and and hey, have you heard about binders? Let's let's look them up on on Amazon and see if we want to buy any kind of thing. Thank you, thank you for sharing all of that. I think it it gives me and I'm sure our listeners a lot to think about. So to go back to some of the interventions that you that you outlined, so you talked about a body story using a timeline and then also journal letter interventions. Um, with a body story, to do a quick recap, so the roots are the belief systems that we were kind of marinated in um, early messaging. And and what's the, what's the trunk again? The trunk would be like the current messages and the current relationships. So the roots would be like growing up or previously, just not current state. What were those messages in relationship? And then the trunk is just current messages and current relationship. Got it. And then leaves what goals or hopes you have for your body kind of in the future. Yeah. What do I want my relationship to look like? Yeah. With my body. Great. And then for the timeline intervention, I can see how helpful that might be to be able to have um, a retrospective on whether or not there is any overlap between these thoughts of, of you know, what is what does my body look like? Am I the right gender? How does this make sense? Does this feel right? And then also any eating disorders that, or excuse me, eating disordered behaviors or thoughts that also came into play. I like that idea of being able to see those two things and have them overlap. Uh, do you do those all on one timeline or do you sometimes work with clients to do it on two separate timelines and then compare them? Oh, uh, I guess whichever one client feels good about. Uh, sometimes clients will just draw a line um, and then it's kind of like a graph and then graph out basically their gender identity. And then below it, they might do another line of that, of the same ages and then graph out eating disorder behaviors. And so you can compare it on one sheet of paper. Um, I think that's, I, that's my preferred way is to have both of them like right on top of each other. So you can see, Oh, age seven, age seven, this is what was going on at the same time. Uh, that's how I like to see it, but whatever the client feels good. And sometimes they might present it in group or they might do it. If you're an outpatient, they can do it at home. They can bring it into session. You could both look at it at the same time and sort of work your way through the birth to today. Um, and they can narrate their life to you. It's, it's a good way to also take a psychosocial if you think about it, because you can learn about your, their life as well as their gender, as well as any, any mental health issues that are coming up. Absolutely. I really like that intervention and that concept as well as what you recommended in the use of non-HRT based interventions like encouraging things like voice changing apps or dressing in a certain way and encouraging that expression in session. Um, when it comes to working with families that have a loved one who is struggling with um, an eating disorder or eating disorder uh, behaviors and also identifies as trans or non-binary and has um, that additional layer uh, to themselves. How do you talk with families that don't necessarily understand and have an appreciation of how all these pieces may or may not fit together? Man, families are tough with with cisgender clients with eating disorders and transgender clients with eating disorders. Either way, eating disorders are tough for families to understand and for families to, well, I mean, the world, the eating disorders, why can't you just eat the food? Why do you have to throw up your food after you eat? So we have to just first just start with basic education of like, this is what an eating disorder is about. This is what um, 
is happening when your kid or your wife or your husband or whoever has urges to purge or had doesn't want to eat lunch or, or binges at night and doesn't tell you. So first is education. It's not a choice. It's um, There's a biological component. There's a behavioral component. There's an env- environmental component. And that perfect storm sort of developed an eating disorder in your loved one. Um, so education first with eating disorder. And then if we have a family who's not accepting of their um, loved one's gender identity, and well, let's do adults first, and then I'll go back to adolescents because that's a different ballgame. So if an adult client has a family member who's not um, affirming, uh, calls them by their birth name, calls them by their pronouns that they've always known and not the pronouns that they identify as, um, and that's affecting the client's mental health, we will try as much as we can to do, um, if the client wants to, do you want to do family sessions with this? Do they want to come in person? Maybe we have to do it over the phone. Um, we have family weeks, for, but that's more for eating disorder purposes. But then we can also just do family sessions and see, okay, Let's work through this. How can we have a healthy relationship? Um, how can you support your loved one as they're in treatment when they come out of treatment? Um, and again, going back to education. Hey, this is identifying transgender, not a choice, right? And I always say to family members, and so I'm cisgender and I'm gay. And so I always say to like my family, why would I choose to be gay? It's, I mean, I would now, but in the beginning, it's very hard. It's I live in the South. It's a very difficult life. Um, you lose friends, you lose relationships, you lose family. So I don't know that anyone would choose it. Again, I would choose this now, but when I'm like 12 years old, I would not. Um, and so just educating family members is key. But then empowering the client. So if this family member, despite all the education and family sessions and all this, if this family member can't get on board, what does the client want to do with that? Do you want to tolerate this relationship? Do you want to end this relationship? Do you want to have somewhere um, in between where you can feel healthy and secure and take care of yourself, but stay in contact with this relationship? Or do you want to completely cut it out? So really just doing whatever the uh, client wants as an adult. Now, adolescents, that's tricky. Um, they might live with their, fam- their parents. Let's just keep them as an example. They might live with their parents. They're financially dependent on their parents. Um, their parents have a say in their schooling and their social life. You know, they completely depend on the parents. So if we have exhausted all of our family sessions and education with the family and um, the family is like, no, unacceptable. You cannot wear these clothes at home. We will call you by the name we gave you. This, you know, this will be one end of the spectrum um, and all that. And so, okay. Unfortunately, what can we do with the adolescent coping skills, empowerment skills, keep them, um, uh, uh, gosh, high rates of suicidality with adolescents who identify as transgender. And so how can we keep them safe while they have to live with their parents, unfortunately. And I spoke to a lot of, um, as part of my training, I got to talk with a lot of transgender individuals. And I'm like, hey, so what do you say to a kid, a 13-year-old who wants to do HRT, who wants to be called uh, Stephanie, who wants to be use these pronouns? And what do you say? And, and a lot of them responded with, um, wait till you're 18. And that's so... I have so much sadness when I heard that. Um, and a lot of the individuals I spoke with live that life, right? Um, where they can't, you know, or, or maybe there's a family member that does accept them. Maybe they could go live with them. You know, so it's a very hard thing to do as a kid, as a teenager, as a five-year-old, you know, or 18-year-old even um, might not be able to do things financially. And so creating a support community, supportive community for the adolescent or the adult, I think it's important. So maybe they can't get support from their family, but maybe they can reach out to trans people in their community or online or um, uh, the Trevor Project uh, can help with mental health and co- help with suicidality. There's a suicide hotline that's just for transgender individuals. And so getting them connected to people who are like them is where I start. I mean, I'll do that anyways, especially if their family is not supportive or affirming. Thank you for explaining kind of part of the psychoeducation piece for families and then when when and if that falls short how to support clients in coming up with a plan that's going to be safe and reasonable for them and how to cope with it if their families are not supportive um i i work with this population as well and can certainly think of too many examples of families uh, making decisions that really exacerbated 
the experience of um, of otherness of trans individuals and wanting to support people and helping, like you said, connect them with community. Um, let's say that you have a family that has no education about eating disorders and they also have no real knowledge or experience with what it means to be transgender. Of course, we often reach for referrals to outpatient groups, you know, to go to um, PFLAG, for example, or to family support groups. When working with families, and this is kind of, this may be a loaded question, what do you reach for first if you have a family that says, I'm willing to go to one group a week <laughs> to help my child, for example, do you reach for the, the eating disorder support group or do you reach for kind of a psychoeducation and support group like PFLAG? That's a great question. Um, I might ask the client, which one would you like your parents to go to? If the gender, and, and depending on what they say, I'd go with that. And if the gender is directly related to the eating disorder, then I want them to go to a PFLAG, a um, Parents of Transgender Kids support group, so they can learn and accept and affirm and how to best support their kid or their loved one. And that could help the eating disorder behaviors dissipate, right? And so if, if they're directly related, I... Right now, I'm thinking, and it could be case by case, I think I would lead them more to um, a transgender family type support group. Thank you. That's helpful. I was just kind of curious as we were talking about it. Yeah. And I've never been asked that. It's great. <laughs> um, to go back to the treatment of a transgender client with eating disordered behaviors, tell us a little bit more about other clinical considerations that we should have in terms of things like medical care and nutrition, knowing that the needs of a transgender individual are different than that of a cisgender individual and how to keep this in mind clinically. The dietitians and medical community, I think in sessions with our, the clients who are transgender, I know they always start with, are there any, is there any language that I can use that can be helpful? Just that one sentence can create an affirming environment in the medical and nutrition world. Um, for example, some people might not like to say, uh, period, they might like to say menstrual cycle, or they might refer to their chest as their chest and not their breast. And so when you're doing like a physical exam, or you're doing, um, are you on any medication? Or have you had any surgeries? So with the dietitians and medical community, those are appropriate questions, right? Because we want to know um, how medications will affect their meal plan, how it'll affect maybe their weight and their appetite. Um, and medical community, of course, wants to know these same things in surgery. As a therapist, I might not need to know that, right? Especially right off the bat, I don't think it's appropriate for me to be like, hey, are you on hormone therapy? Hey, have you had surgery? That's not appropriate. If I'm talking about transitioning um, and, and we go that direction, uh, then we can start talking about it. Or if it's in my psychosocial, are you in any medications? Have you had any medical procedures? I might leave it at that. Um, but that's one thing to start off with. With the dietitians and medical because um, they're going to be looking at their labs on on or off HRT. And when you're binging and purging, that's going to affect how uh, your labs look. It's going to affect your how your medication works. If you're restricting, that's going to affect all these things. And so talking with the client, hey, here the we we want you to be if the client wants to be on HRT, we want you to be on HRT. Um, and if you continue using your eating disorder behaviors, you might not have the results you desire kind of thing. Um, or, you know, just explain the, the interactions between uh, hormone therapy, eating disorder behaviors. And back up all the way. So the WPATH, World Professional Association of Transgender Healthcare, their standards of care say, um, if there is a mental health issue or medical issue, it has to be well reasonably managed, I believe are the words that they use, um, but it doesn't really go into great detail. And so really it could be up to the treatment team um, or the, the endocrinologist or the surgeon. Um, so with our clients, if they're in residential level of care, chances are and they, they're not on HRT, chances are they might not be nutritionally or medically stable to start HRT. But as they become medically nutritionally stable and they want to, then we're going to explore that option and work with our local resources. Um, but we're also, we also, part of the transparency piece is just educating the client. We can't let you start HRT right now. You're not medically nutritionally stable. As we progress, this is what's going to happen with your body. If you want to start HRT, let's do it. This is what will happen with your body. Um, so I think asking the right questions and education for nutrition in the medical community. I've had the experience of working with medical providers that 
really have no experience working with transgender individuals and they're um, sometimes misgendered or there's there's just a, a lack of understanding. How have you kind of worked within um, within even your area to find providers, medical providers, nutritionists, dietitians, like you're mentoring, mentioning who are affirming and are appropriately educated? Oh gosh. Okay. So, um, so I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, but I, I work with clients from all over the, the nation when they come to our program. So the number one thing I always reach out to, or I always see, Oh, this client is from, uh, Orlando, Florida or Denver, wherever I want to go directly. If that city has an LGBTQ resource center, uh, Birmingham has one. It's the only one in the state of Alabama. I'm going to go directly to them the Magic City Acceptance Center and say, hey, who are your trusted therapists? Who are your trusted uh, medical providers? And they have a good pulse. Uh, from my experience, they have a good pulse, um, especially the city that they're in, but also a, a little bit of the state. Or they might know someone in um, a smaller town, uh, Huntsville, it's two hours north of Birmingham. They might know someone who can get me this information. So I'm going to go to the, the source. Um, also, I want the client to feel empowered to uh, l- look up these individuals, look up their website, look up if they have a Facebook page, um, if there are a trans community um, support group, go to the support group. Hey, have you used this dietitian? Have you used this therapist? What was your experience? And also, sometimes I might mispronoun, right? And Or sometimes I might say the wrong name, especially if you have a client who you've worked with for years as Stephanie and now Stephanie is David and I want to give grace to myself, but also want to correct that behavior. Right. And so I can recall a time I mispronounced an individual and I had so much shame and so much just, Oh, I was a a spiral. And so I addressed it and um, I apologized. And I said, you know, there's no intent. I want the client to know there's no intent. There's no malice behind that. It was a mistake. I'll work more on it, you know, kind of thing. Anyways, so people might misgender and mispronoun um, and don't completely write them off, but also empower them to speak up and say, hey, use use your own pronoun, you know. Um, but anyways, finding resources, go to the, go to the uh, LGBTQ resources in your area. And if you need an eating disorder therapist, whew, who also works with transgender individuals, um, call me and I'll, I'll try to find one for you um, or uh, ask the resource center um, if they know of anyone as well, because they might know. Got it. Thank you. And in terms of additional resources for clinicians or for individuals who want to learn more about how to be competent in working with eating disordered uh, behaviors with transgender clients, what websites or other resources do you recommend in addition to what you just named? Sure. So there's um, a website called transfolksfightingeds.org. So it's transfolksfightingeds.org. And so that has a lot of resources, online resources, um, support groups, and they offer also offer trainings that you can have them do on uh, like a zoom call or uh, they can come to your facility kind of thing and train your staff. Um, and it has like stats on eating disorders. And then they also reference the national eating disorder association website. So that's a good website for information on eating disorders, as well as there's a section for LGBTQ individuals. Um, the Alliance center for eating disorders, uh, Google that. And there's also, that's a good website to find therapists, find resources, find treatment centers, find more information. Um, so it's, it's out there. It might just be split between there's eating disorder references and there's transgender references. And so trans folks fighting EDs is one combined. Um, but there's not a lot of like combined, uh, resources for both, if that makes sense. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that. And Allison, if listeners want to get in touch with you and learn more about you, how can they do that? Sure. Um, so my email address is allison.burnett, A-L-L-I-S-O-N dot B-U-R-N-E-T-T at alsana, A-L-S-A-N-A dot com. Uh, or you can just go to the Alsana website, alsana.com and my name and bios on there and uh, what I do for the company. Um, 
Yeah. And it, my email is just first name dot last name. So that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you again, Allison, for sharing your expertise. This isn't something I think that we talk about enough. And I'm fortunate to have an opportunity to talk with someone like you to share this information with more folks via this podcast. So thank you again for being here. Oh gosh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for letting me talk. And it's been, it's been a privilege. Thank you so much. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.